Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is The Next Move, where we're talking about how we can build the future we want from this moment. Today, we're going to talk about how we fuse race and class, what that means, and why if we want to get anything done, it's going to have to be a key part of the puzzle. But first, I want to tell you a story. When I was a young organizer, I worked for Gail Sincata. Gail was a mother of six who came up on the west side of Chicago, and she was also the mother of the Community Reinvestment Act. She took on the big banks and helped generate trillions of dollars that went to low and moderate income neighborhoods. In the 1970s, Gail found organizing because panic peddlers had invaded her neighborhood. This was largely a white ethnic neighborhood. And panic peddlers would come and knock on the door of the homeowner and say, hey, I'll give you $40,000 for your house today. And people would be like, you're crazy. It's worth more than that. And then the panic peddler would say, well, the blacks are coming. I'll give you 40000 a day. If you pass on it, I'll be back next month and offer you 35000 I think you see where this is going. And so they started scaring white homeowners into selling their homes. Gail Sincata inserted herself in this moment and said, hey, we found the enemy and it's not each other. It's not white people. It's not black people. It's the sleazy realtors that are trying to take us all to the cleaners. And that concept of we found the enemy and it's not each other, to me, feels as relevant now as it did then and maybe even more so. My guest today is Ian Henny Lopez, professor of public law at UC Berkeley. Ian has spent his life studying race. And over the last decade, he has focused on how race is used as a tool by super wealthy elites to divide people. His latest book is Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. Ian has crystallized what we've all been experiencing in terms of dog whistle politics as a means of divide and conquer by the right. I think if we're going to get anything done, we need to understand how this strategy works and how to fight it. So here's Ian Henny Lopez on the need to fuse race and class to make the America we want. I just finished Merge Left last night. I really appreciate you writing it. Um, so many good stories in there. Can you take us through the like three moves of dog whistle politics? Yeah, so dog whistle politics, a lot of people think, well, this is an effort to inject racial poison into the conversation. And it absolutely is. But as a strategy, it's really quite sophisticated. The first move is to use code to inject racial thinking to inject racial fear into the political conversation. These, these terms like illegal alien or gangbanger or terrorist. The second is to deny any culpability. It's to shrug your shoulders and say, hey, I, I never mentioned race. I never used a racial epithet. I don't have a racist bone in my body. And the third move is to turn around and say, hey, those liberal critics they're accusing me of being a racist, but I didn't say a racist word at all. And they're not only calling me, the politician, a racist, they're calling everybody who agrees with me a racist. What the right is trying to do is to push people into thinking that the fundamental conflict in society is between racial groups. And the right wants people to go into the voting booth thinking, I'm here to choose which racial team I'm on. And when liberal critics or progressive critics are calling dog whistle politicians racist, that amplifies the idea that we really are divided between angry minorities and their liberal defenders on the one hand, and these people who aren't racist and are really just talking about things that are common sense, like protecting the borders and cutting back on welfare cheats. 
that somehow we really are divided between hardworking Americans and these angry minorities and their liberal defenders. We need to figure out how to name dog whistle politics as a strategy rather than as simple bigotry. When you came and met with the People's Action staff in Florida at our staff retreat, I was really blown away by the history lesson you took us through. And I think as an organization, People's Action is kind of oriented around a similar analysis, but not that level of, of understanding of the history. And I don't know if there's a way you could give a kind of mini history lesson of some of the, the emergence of dog whistle politics as a strategy and some key moments in its evolution. So 1963 is the moment when a reactionary faction hijacks the Republican Party, which up to then had been relatively racially progressive. But this reactionary faction, they wanted to roll back the clock on government working for people rather than corporations. They wanted to take us back to the 19th century when government's principal role was to promote capitalism uh, and to trust the rich as the main engines of social progress. But they knew that that sort of economic prescription was a disaster for the vast majority of Americans and was deeply unpopular. So they decided to use coded racial appeals. They decided they would seek to take advantage of the rising anxiety among whites generated by the civil rights movement. It was a racial strategy they adopted to break apart a New Deal coalition that combined African-Americans, working class whites, and liberals. Their real aim was to build popular support for a reactionary economic program that dismantled the New Deal, that turned people against the idea that government should work for the many versus the few, and that convinced people that they were on their own, that they should trust the marketplace, and that the rich were going to be a society's saviors. At its inception in 1963, racial dog whistle politics was a billionaire's con. And that's precisely what it is in 2020 as well. One of the things you said that maybe would surprise a lot of people, basically, how have Democrats ended up deciding to imitate the, the right? Well, here, here's the real challenge. Racist stereotypes are pervasive in our culture. Racist stereotypes come across as common sense to most people. And you can get away with promoting racist stereotypes as long as you avoid using a racial epithet. That's the deal. That's the reality. And that's what the right knows. What does that mean for Democrats? It's very hard to challenge the intentional promotion of racist stereotypes so long as people are careful to speak in code, because so many Americans accept those stereotypes. So eventually the Democrats say to themselves, we can't challenge it directly. We can't ignore it. Maybe we should imitate it. And that's what happens with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton and the New Democrats say, we're going to compete with the Republicans for the votes of racially anxious whites by using the same sorts of racist stereotypes, again, presented in code. We're going to talk about ending welfare as a way of life. We're going to talk about cracking down on crime. We're going to talk about government as the threat to us, rather than as a route of upward mobility for working families. That's what Bill Clinton does. Two things follow from this. One, for the last 30 years, 
things have gotten so bad in this country because both political parties have been locked into a competition about which party can be tougher on people of color. And second, both parties have had to look for their support beyond people of color, beyond the labor movement that is also closely connected with racial justice. And thus both parties, including the Democrats, have increasingly looked for support from Wall Street. That's what's really happened over the last 30 years. We've had this skyrocket in wealth inequality and skyrocketing government violence against people of color in the form of police violence, mass incarceration, mass deportation. Both of those are inseparably connected. We get violence against communities of color because the parties are saying, hey, dear voter, we're going to protect you against those supposedly dangerous and undeserving people. And we get skyrocketing wealth inequality because both parties are increasingly serving the interests of Wall Street, corporations, and family dynasties rather than all the rest of us. So who are the winners in dog whistle politics? The winners in dog whistle politics are the dog whistling politicians and their dark money backers. Look at the reactionary family dynasties that so heavily fund right-wing think tanks uh, and right-wing astroturf movements. I have in mind here the Mercers, the Koch brothers, even the Trumps as a wealthy billionaire family dynasty. These folks are heavily investing in and heavily promoting racial division. They are shattering our sense of connection to each other, and they are laughing all the way to the bank. They're passing tax cuts for themselves. They're re-regulating the economy and the environment and the workplace so that it's good for corporations and major polluters and bad for workers and bad for the rest of us. Ian, if you could wave a magic wand and get the progressive movement to do some things, what would it be? What do you think we need to do? Progressives need to recognize that racial justice and economic justice are inseparably fused in America. If progressives could name that reality consistently through many different stories across all sorts of different issues, if progressives could show voters how race and class are really race class, race fused to class, that would help us take the next great step toward recognizing all of our fates are linked across racial lines, whites included. That's the way to generate the multiracial wave election that alone is capable of fundamentally changing this country's direction. And then what becomes possible? Can you give us some examples of what becomes possible if we actually fuse together a multiracial majoritarian solidarity? Everything. Everything becomes possible. We have so many great ideas, debt-free college, the Green New Deal, investing in infrastructure, ending government violence against communities of color and instead investing in and repairing those harms. All of that depends on control of government. And control of government depends on us believing each other and voting together to elect leaders who are really willing to work for us. You might be the one person that would agree with this. I always telling funders, if you want to win on climate change or you want to win on immigration, you need to fund organizing a narrative work that fuses race and class. You know, I've actually written a chapter on that. The Green New Deal right now fuses environmental justice, economic justice, and racial justice. And the underlying intuition seems to have been 
this is how we cobble together a big enough coalition. But the reality is that's not just convenient. It's strictly necessary. When the Koch brothers wanted to defeat the Obama administration's efforts to regulate their polluting industry, they funded the Tea Party and racial hate. Major polluters invest in racial hate to break our power to make sure the government actually works to protect the environment. The Green New Deal will never be achieved until we address racial division in our politics because it's the single most important weapon in the hands of polluters like the Koch brothers right now. Ian, amidst a pandemic, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is in the midst of crisis, we see more clearly than ever that we're all in this together, that we need each other to move forward. And also we see more clearly than ever the way in which social structures that we've taken for granted simply aren't working. And now in the midst of the pandemic, you see more and more people saying, our fates are linked. And unless we're taking care of each other, none of us are really safe. That's the key insight. And if we can reclaim that, if we can build that, if we can internalize it, if we can make that the basis for interacting with each other, that's when we can actually reclaim the real trajectory of this country, which is upwards and outwards in terms of more inclusiveness, a society that's more responsive to all of us, a society in which we all have a stake and we all have a role in government. That's the potential. And it's, it's not going to be resolved in 2020. It's not going to be resolved in 2030. This is the larger question of the American Revolution. Can we build out of many people one, e pluribus unum? In 1776, we knew that was the real way to fight feudalism, monarchism, the power of the few over the many. And we've been struggling towards that goal for a couple hundred years. But in the midst of the pandemic, we can see more clearly than ever, we have to reclaim that ideal. And when we do, that makes me hopeful we can get back on track and actually make this a country that works for all of us. So Ian provides us not just with an analysis, but with an analysis that has real life applications. And he teamed up with communications expert Anat Shankar Asario to test narratives that fuse race and class and do that in a way that can combat dog whistle politics. And one of the things we've done at People's Action is apply fusing race and class to deep canvas conversations on people's front doors, where we go knock on doors in rural and small town communities to talk about issues like immigration. And immigration can be a hot button issue in many of these communities. But we found by connecting race and class and helping people see that yes, there is a villain, in the story of what's happening in your community and in this moment in American life, but that villain isn't immigrants. It's actually more big pharma, big health insurance company, the big banks. That message resonated with people and people were then ready to have a different conversation about immigration. And we actually measured what we did and a significant percentage of people who we talked to about immigration, fusing race and class, shifted their worldview on immigration and that shift lasted for months. So we think we're on to something. 
If you want to learn more about how to fuse race and class and real ways to apply that, go to peoplesaction.org slash next move to find more resources and ways to engage. One way to do that is to read Merge Left by Ian Haney Lopez. You can find Ian on social media at Ian Haney Lopez. This podcast was produced by People's Action and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Melissa Lowe. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. Bye now.